Well, welcome to the uh, Brookie and Burjo podcast. Darren Burgess, welcome again. Thanks, Brookie. Good to see you again. Yes, as uh, those who have been listening so far would know, we're starting every week with uh, a version of You'll Never Walk Alone. And uh, that one was from a Liverpool Borussia Dortmund game in 2015 in the Europa League. And most people are aware that Liverpool uh, used You'll Never Walk Alone as their anthem. But a number of other clubs do as well, one of which is Borussia Dortmund. And uh, so you had two clubs playing mm. on that day that both use uh, You'll Never Walk Alone. And so the two lots of fans were singing it, uh, one of those rare occasions where everyone on the ground is, is singing it. But um, Dortmund is, uh, I've, I've never been to a Dortmund game, but it's on my bucket list. I mean, they have this yellow wall, their colours are yellow, as uh, many listeners would know, and they have a, a wall similar to the cop, I guess, in Anfield. They call it the, the yellow wall. 25,000 people standing on that uh, that one end of the ground. And uh, from all reports, it's an amazing uh, experience. Yeah, it's amazing to think that 25,000 in the stadium. I've, I've been lucky enough to pl- not play, to be part, put cones out in a, um, <laughs> in a friendly there, but uh, it was half full, so it wasn't the same. But uh, it's amazing to think 25,000 in one stand, you know, out here we just don't... Um, we don't, just don't have that, do we? No, so, no. Nah, there's a lot of controversy. a lot of controversy about the the song and the connection to the club because uh, they didn't take it up until uh, until the 1990s. And uh, um, even though they'd played both Liverpool and Celtic, where where that song had been sung, but uh, the story goes that a uh, German five-piece group called Pure Harmony uh, were convinced to con- to uh, record the song in the 90s, and uh, they did, and from that moment on it became the, the Dortmund uh, anthem, as okay. it has in so many clubs. But we'll, you know, we'll explore You'll Never Walk Alone. Now. I know you I've love got a few more, dogs, I've got a few so, more versions yes. for you as we, uh, as we go along. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's continue with your story, because we left off... Uh, where the, the Darren Burgess story started in uh, the Sydney Swans and Parramatta in the NSL, Port Adelaide, the first uh, uh, time at Port Adelaide, then on to the Socceroos, Liverpool, and then back to Port Adelaide. And we were talking last time about your second time at, at Port Adelaide. But it was it was an interesting time in, in the sort of high-performance world. You know, we were in the middle of the sort of the one-percenters, you know, David Brailsford and uh, Sky Cycling and British Cycling and so on. How did that affect... You know, your, uh, I guess, your role or your your idea of, I mean, I guess you'd always, maybe you'd never talked about one percenters, but that had always yep. been a, a factor. Yeah, I guess that, that sort of concept of marginal gains came out. Um, uh, everyone had spoken about it, but no one had gone sort of public like Team Sky did um, yep. uh, around that time. Um, we're always looking for that one percent um, and whether that be you know, different sleep techniques, um, you know, even supplements, looking at technology. Um, at Port Adelaide, you know, we, we found it hard to to keep up with the Joneses a bit, mainly because of financial reasons. Um, so we invested our time and money in people. Um, but certainly at Liverpool, just prior to Port Adelaide, there was a lot of pressure um, to have the best uh, of, of everything and to, to try and find those. I remember... You know, as you would too, we just got contacted by so many different companies and saying that Team Sky use this or this pillow is the best, you know, all those types of things. So there was pressure for sure. And and we were always keeping an eye on what was going on in AFL and you'd heard little rumours and stories about what was going on at, at Essendon during that time. Um, 
but uh, yeah, no one could have predicted what you know what came out of that of that period of time at the Bombers. Yeah, and you mentioned supplements there, obviously, which were a, were a major factor, and obviously. Uh, <laughs> Most of our listeners would be aware of uh, of the Essendon saga, where uh, they were being given. Were you, were you ever contacted by those guys to? Uh... Yeah, I actually uh, was uh, offered a job at Essendon, um, which is which uh, James Heard has gone public. Although he did, in in uh, his report, Angus Monfrey is a good friend of mine who played for Essendon at the time. Uh, took great delight in showing me the footage of James Hurd saying, yeah, we contacted Paul Burgess for a job. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look, I, I interviewed for the job, and but I'd only been at Liverpool for a year or so. So in terms of being contacted by um, the companies, uh, it was I'd, I'd had some contact with Stephen Dank yep. um, in 2000. most clubs had at some yeah, stage. Yeah, in 2007, uh, he came and visited the facilities at Port Adelaide. And uh, that was that was my only contact with him. But there was a supplement company that he was associated with that I would say I got a phone call every three months, four mm. months to say, try this, try this, it works really well. Um, but I was never interested. Mm. Obviously that uh, that whole saga, did a lot of damage to the uh, to the reputation, I guess, or the, the image of, of high performance. Uh, I remember that the day before it came out, I was at a meeting uh, at the AFL on another issue uh, with Andrew Demetrio, and at the end of the meeting, he suddenly suddenly turned to me and said, oh, do you think these high performance, uh, these fitness guys have uh, become too powerful? And I thought, oh, that was a strange thing to say. And then, then the, the next, next day, day yeah. the Eston uh, the thing, and I thought, oh, okay, I know where he was coming from. Um, but, I mean, that must have been... Tough for the profession. Yep. Uh, you, cop- you copped a fair whack. Yeah, we we did, and there was just these images of uh, fitness people with test tubes and glasses and lab coats, and and I remember a few of us, Johan Billsborough, who uh, is now at um, New England Patriots, and Aaron Coots, myself, um, Jason Weber from Fremantle. We sort of got together and started having some conversations about how can we help, how can we help restore the faith and convince people that our job is is performance but it's also welfare and the two are you you cannot help but link the two um and so uh, one of the strategies was to be a bit more open with the things that we were doing um so certainly at port adelaide when i came back and port had no members um you know the famous tarps around the ground that that people still you know talk about um one of the things that, that Port asked me to do and in conjunction with discussing it with these other high-performance people was to be a bit more um, open um, to, to talk about some of the techniques and strategies and it just so happened that we were successful. So they they uh, consciously said, ah, oh, we're the fittest team and we wanted to convince our players that we were the fittest team so we came out publicly and said, you know, we're fit and Burjo's this and Burjo's that. And, and so my dad always told me to... You know, if you stick your neck up, you get shot at. Um, that was one of his famous sayings, if he thought I was ever getting a bit too cocky as a young attacker. So I wasn't exactly comfortable uh, doing that. But as one of the older statesmen of the... Uh, it hurt me to see the, the profession that we'd spent so much time building up and making relevant just be cut down. And everybody was having a shot at us, whether it was the AFL, certain doctors, you know, uh, overseas people were all having a shot at at phys edders, as we were called, and so we felt a, a bit of a duty to... Now, that that I still regret some of the things that happened then because uh, I had fellow professionals uh, at conferences 
calling me either guru and all these sorts of things. So, um, but at no stage was it anything motivated. Uh, was it motivated by anything other than to help our profession gain some credibility? You know. Yeah. And you feel that's been restored largely. Uh, it has, yeah, yeah. There, there was a cost to it though. Like I, I hid in my shell after two thousand and fifteen when. I turned up to a couple of conferences and saw a couple of videos of conferences where people that I respected uh, in the field were um, putting, were laughing about the fact that we went to Dubai instead of staying in Adelaide when the temperatures were hotter, you know, and we came out and said it was um, uh, heat training and, and some of the physiological benefits of heat, heat training, which have subsequently been proven. Um, you know, uh, so I took a bit of a personal hit at, at that point, but I think the... Um, the industry has been restored largely through good work and good research and not in any way for anything that I did to the Adelaide media. But, mm. um, yeah, I think we've taken a bit of a hit recently with the COVID, um, yep. you know, in terms of the number of staff that have, have had to be let go. But I think the industry itself has been largely restored anyway. I want to uh, take up your point about Dubai there and, yep. and heat. Uh, so obviously there was a stage there in the AFL in particular where everyone went crazy on altitude. I think Collingwood went to uh, altitude one year, won the flag, and you know it was all about altitude and they yeah. had altitude chambers and, yep. and so on like that. As I remember, you've never been a, such a big fan of altitude. No, not at all. Um, and the biggest thing about it, there's no doubt that physiologically altitude works. We know that. That's indisputable. But it works for a temporary period. So going to altitude in November when your first game is the end of March seemed to make no sense to me. Now, there is a psychological benefit. We can't deny that. You go to altitude, you come back a week later, you do the beep test, everyone's getting above 14, everyone's happy. Um, so there's a psychological aspect, but the physiology only lasts for a small period of time. We know that. So physiologically, it didn't make sense. to. The other thing is at every altitude camp that every AFL team has ever done they show footage of walking up hills and hiking in snow and because you, know, you can't get altitude largely without mm. and training indoors in you know, indoor NFL or college NFL uh, um, training centers uh, and that's not footy so it's not very specific um, certainly at Port Adelaide we had a very young group so taking them hiking and running up snow hills and in an indoor gridiron or NFL area just didn't make any sense uh, for us. So um, some of the great work, again, that uh, Aaron Coots, um, Johan uh, Billsborough were involved in, Martin Bouchard were involved with in um, uh, Doha and looking at some, some great work where you could combine heat and altitude rooms showed that uh, heat had just as good a physiological benefit as what altitude did. So Dubai represented a great opportunity for us to get, there's a lot of cricket ovals in Dubai, as you know better than most, so mm. um, we could play footy, we had a young group, we could make them feel like they were getting treated, especially the second year there we went to a facility which is better than anything on the planet, so our players felt like they were being treated really well, it was hot, they got specific training and they got physio you know, physiological benefit from it. Now, take us through day one at uh, on, the, on the first trip. Uh, you know the players come off the plane. Um, yeah. Long trip, what's fourteen hours or whatever from yep. uh, from Adelaide. Yeah. They probably expected to go to their rooms, have a little bit of a nap. Um, yeah. You know, get over the jet lag, take things easy. What what actually happened? It's 
It's one of these things that, having been exposed to someone like a Lorimer Mosley, in many conversations you you and I had have had around the world, uh, travelling with the Socceroos, we often talked about the effect of mental on physical, and I'm by no means an expert. But what I did know from my own little experiments, I used to everywhere we'd go in the world, I'd, um, the next day I'd go for a run and I'd take my heart rate, heart rate variability, and I'd do it every single day to see how long it would take me to uh, acclimatise to whatever environment. So, uh, and what I felt was that, that some of the stuff about recovery post-trips is a little bit overblown and is a little bit too scientific and doesn't apply to the practical world because we know that in NBA, baseball, those leagues, people had to fly, being exposed to people like Tim Cahill and Lucas Neal and yeah, Harry Kuehl and those guys, they would fly, play for Everton on a Saturday, fly, play for us on the Wednesday in those non-FIFA dates, go back and play for Everton again. Mm. So we got them off the plane, 13 hours in economy, uh, no, no business class, so uh, that needs to be said. But certainly, Tim <coughs> different Cahill, to Liverpool. Yeah, didn't fly economy too much, um, and uh, we took them straight to the track. So they dumped their bags in the foyer. We just—it was eight thirty in the morning. We just said to them, "Your rooms aren't ready, so we'll just dump your bags here in this big room." Um, uh, I wasn't there. I was at the track, uh, at the facility, preparing for it, but. Uh, a couple of the other performance staff said, um, boys, we've got some bikes out there. We're just going to go for a nice little ride. Gave them a quick snack, went for a ride. So I remember, it's just 13 hours, no sleep. Uh, got to the training ground. I was there. Said, um, boys, what's the hardest thing I've ever made you do on the previous Christmas? Um, I made them do 100 hundreds um, at, at Alberton Oval. And I think Hamish Hartlett said 100 hundreds. I said, that's what we're doing right now. And so we did it. So and straight off the plane, straight off the plane. Yeah, I had an extended warm up. What temperature was it? A hundred hundreds. It was late twenties, so it wasn't ridiculously hot. Yeah. And I ended up adjusting a couple of the hundreds, so I made them two hundreds and things like that. But they high speed ran ten thousand meters, you know, a hundred hundreds, and they coped. They were fine. We, no didn't, we didn't lose a single player on that on that Dubai trip, and in that eight-day period. We did something like 88 kilometres um, in eight days, heaps of double sessions, and it was something like uh, 13,000 high-speed metres or something like that. Um, I, I've often thought with, with Chris Verglis, Drew Graham and Ian McEwen, who are part of the performance team, that we'd write up what we did. Um, so we may in fact do that because we did a submax heart rate test every single morning um, so we could see how they were adapting. And um, so, yeah, we might... We might write that up one day. But it was as much a ment mental as it was a physical. As it happened, we had a pretty good year that year, so we could always refer back to the Dubai camp as, as um, uh, whatever we've got to face during the week, it's nothing compared to what we put them, the players through in Dubai. So, mm. um, But, yeah, it was, it was more a mental than a physical, but it showed that mm. if your mind believes you can do it, your body will, will go just fine. And you're still a fan of heat. I mean, obviously, Massive. AFL teams prepare over the summer, and yep. which is usually hot, so you don't yep. have to go searching for heat a lot of the time. No, but we often adjust our um, training times to the middle part of the day to get that heat exposure. 
um, and never ever shy away from. Of course, you have to take precautions, um, but uh, as a general rule, I'll try and train in the hottest part of the day to get that that dual benefit of the training as well as the the you know uh, oxygen starved environment of heat when the blood flow is altered, uh, you know, for for evaporative purposes. What about other sports? I mean, I think sports like cycling, for instance, are still pretty big on altitude training. Yep. Um, are they wasting their time, or no, are they no. are they doing ju- would they do just as well with heat training? Do you I, think? I think they do just as well. Um, the the beauty of altitude training, you know, before a cycling event is the physiology is proven. Um, mm. Before a single cycling event, or to ramp up adaptations, as long as you you continually stress the body afterwards, you're okay. Um, I mean, we spoke to all of those people prior to the World Cup in 2010 and not one of them said sleep in an altitude tent or anything like that. Mm. Um, they said just go there as, as early as possible. So they're certainly not wasting their time. Altitude has proven physiological benefits. But I just happen to think and, and know through some really good research that you can get similar benefits in, in heat. Right. Fascinating, fascinating. All right, we've got a bit sidetracked. Let's, <laughs> let's get back to the Virgo uh, story. So... Your second uh, period at Port Adelaide, um, you were happily ensconced in, uh, in Adelaide, and then uh, what, what, you got a phone call? <coughs> I got or, a phone uh... call out of the blue. I thought it was uh, somebody taking the mickey, um, but it was, yeah, it was the CEO uh, of, of Arsenal asking if I was interested um, in a position there, and it was about midnight, um, and I said, yep, yeah, I am, and uh, it all happened pretty quickly. Um, about a week later, I was on a plane to Nice to meet with... Um, uh, the, the CEO knew we had a Thursday night game, I think it was, against um, Hawthorne. And um, that was a Friday night game. And I flew to Nice, arrived Saturday at midday in Nice. It was the day of the Champions League final. Uh, that night I was watching the uh, Champions League final with Arsene Wenger um, uh, in his hotel room uh, and the CEO of Arsenal and a couple of people that he knew in Nice. I was falling asleep. I was trying to convince him that I loved soccer, <laughs> but I was falling asleep because of the, yeah. the flight. And then um, by Sunday morning at 10 a.m., I was on a flight again, uh, arrived back in Adelaide by 9 a.m. Monday morning, walked straight into Ken Hinckley's office and said, look, this has happened. I don't know what it looks like, but um, this is the scenario. Um, it's it's a pretty good opportunity that, that I'd like to explore and... Um, to Ken's credit, there'd been a couple of opportunities before that that he'd said, no, I don't want you to explore it because the club wasn't in as good a space as it was midway through 2017. Um, and uh, he said, no, you'd be stupid not to... We'll miss you, but life will go on, and it has um, at, at Port. So, yeah, that was it. I think it's fair to say, as an outside observer, that Arsenal... Uh, were known for many things at that time. A lot of the, the lottery football they played, but they're also known for the fact they probably had the worst injury record of any club in the <coughs> in, any of the big clubs in the in the Premier League. They seem to constantly have have issues. Yep. Um, I'm guessing that's one of the reasons they looked outside the Premier League to someone like yourself. Is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, certainly. Um, the CEO and the and the manager at the time, um, whose uh, manager is unbelievable, well credentialed. Um, yep. Uh, certainly laid out uh, in Nice that the reason why I was here, and they weren't just interviewing me, they were talking to a couple of other people, um, was to address 
the the injury record and the re-injury rates um, mm. that they had there. Now, um, you should never comment. One should never comment on what happens at other clubs, but that was the facts that that were presented to me. That that my main um, role there was to try and coordinate the physical with the medical with the academy structure. So. That's that was so enticing about the role is that it, there's not too many of them in world sport at such big clubs like Arsenal. Um, so to to have something like seventy odd staff, you know, through the academy all the way through to try and align everybody together to Arsene's way of thinking um, was was exciting, and that was one of the main factors. Is um, we felt, and certainly Ivan Gazidis, the CEO. And Arsene felt that we couldn't keep up with Manchester City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester United in terms of buying new players. So they had this strategy where they were going to recruit the best talent and hired probably one of the best recruiters on the planet in Sven Mislinstadt, who put together that Dortmund team for Jurgen Klopp. Um, uh, he would recruit the talent and it was my job to to try and, with the, with the support of many staff, develop that, that talent. Um, uh, we were going to recruit the best under 24 on the planet um, because we couldn't afford to necessarily buy the best players and then develop those uh, those players. So it was an area that we saw we could have an advantage with. and that's. So I was there uh, about six weeks later. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I was in, in uh, uh, London Colney, which is Arsenal's training ground, and I was there for a week, and then uh, Arsenal had a pre-season tour of Australia. So I uh, <laughs> jumped on a plane came and back. came back to Sydney <clears throat> uh, and played two games there. Yeah. We talked previously when, about what you found when you came to Liverpool. Um, what about when you came to, to Arsenal? What were your first impressions of, uh, of the <clears throat> setup there? It was uh, the number of staff surprised me. There was just so many staff um, and staff that had been there for a long period of time, you know, physios, doctors, masseurs, um, staff around the place, whether it be their communications person or whatever, had been there forever. It was a family, really. I mean, Arsene really had created like a family club, hadn't uh, Incredible. Incredible the way that they treated their staff, the longevity was completely different to what we found at, at Liverpool. The owners were stable, everything was stable. So you really felt like it was, it was a, a good place to work. What comes with that is is uh, ways in which um, people do things which are well established, and so it was quite hard to go in there and say, "Well, have we thought of a different way? Have we thought of this way of doing things? Let's have a discussion about that way." And I, I'll never forget it. One of the first couple of weeks that I was there, there was a lineup of people outside Arsene's office because my office was right next to his. I thought, "Oh, he must be in a meeting or something like that," and. I had to give him some information really quickly about the morning session. So I sort of walked outside and walked outside my office and, uh, what are you guys waiting for? Uh, we're waiting for Arsene to come out. I said, is he in a meeting? We don't know. Okay. So I, I opened the door and he was just sitting there planning the training session. And uh, I, I said, boss, can I ask you a question about a player? Do you mind if he comes in and out of that particular? He said, no, no problem. What drill? Okay. Yep. No problem. No worries. And then just walked back out again. And, and the other guys were, uh, other staff members were too intimidated mm. to disturb him because, it, you know, he had this aura about him. But, um, yeah, he, in the end, he was unbelievably um, one of the most intelligent people you would ever come across. Global intelligence. He could have a, as 
as good a discussion on um, West African politics as he could about, um, you know, playing 4-3-3 versus 4-4-2. He knew everything about Australian political Aboriginal history. It was incredible. Um, so one of the great thrills was having an office next to his and having long conversations that started off about performance and who we should pick on the weekend, of which I only spoke when spoken to, but ended up in, did you see what happened with uh, uh, with the riots in France on this particular day or whatever it might have been. So so it, 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 was, uh, it was a real learning experience. It was tough because I don't think many of the staff wanted me there, didn't see a need for me to be there because things had been in their eyes going pretty well. Um, but over time, I think I developed pretty good relationship with the staff there and um, we were able to challenge them um, uh, and and uh, try and bring everybody together um, to a way of thinking. Uh, I couldn't have done it without the support of the CEO. He was adamant that mm. that things weren't going particularly well, so we needed to change things. And ultimately, um, had a conversation with Arsene in January of my first year after being there six months and, and Arsene also saw the need for change, which is what we did the end of the season, which was still probably, you know, some of the hardest months of my life is going through that that whole scenario that, that I did at the end of my first season. Yeah, obviously you're brought in as an agent of change. <clears throat> That's very threatening to uh, to people. You said people have been there a long time. Uh, all of us, they presumably didn't think they needed to change. Yep. And um, so what, how do you go about uh, changing things when... when People don't want to be changed. Yeah, it was really tough. And, and so I didn't want to be the person to do that. Um, I wanted to bring in outside help. So um, we brought in uh, some outside facilitators along with a psychologist at the club um, to help um, uh, the staff become more aligned. So we'd get all the staff in and say, okay, what do we want to be known for? How do we want to be presented um, what, what, um, how do we want to make decisions? I don't want to be the person who makes those decisions. I want it to be really collegiate and open to discussion. And so we all sat in a room on many afternoons, probably when a lot of us didn't want to, we wanted to go home and, mm. but we all sat in and nutted out exactly how we wanted to be defined. And if there was a debate between, excuse me, a physio and a nutritionist and a fitness person, how would we resolve that debate. <clears throat> what criteria would we use? And so we all did that with the help of an independent person. It wasn't me leading that. Um, and so we tried to change that way. Ultimately, um, at the end of the day, people had to be held accountable for the fact that um, there was still a, a high injury rate. We'd managed to reduce that dramatically in the first year. Um, but ultimately, um, you want a department that um, is all working together and there were just that many occasions where players would would come to me with mixed messages, and um, you know, and so that was that was ultimately the decision that that the whole club was supportive of, you know, from the manager to the CEO to the decision to make some changes at the, the end of that first year. Right. So, and, and there was some, obviously some very long-serving Arsenal people <clears throat> who had to be got rid of. Which yeah, would not have been a pleasant experience. No, it wasn't because the people that had been there for for a long time—not the staff, but the you know, the HR and things like that—you know—they developed really strong relationships with these people. So, and 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 I have to say, it wasn't uh, 
incompetence or anything like that. It was just a decision that was uh, absolutely taken in the best interests of the club. And I still get a bit fired up talking about it, as you can probably tell, because mm. it, I had sleepless nights over it. And I had the support of a lot of staff there um, at the time that were, um, you know, really uh, vocal about what needed to happen. <clears throat> and then when it happened, I was left absolutely standing by myself. <laughs> of course. And it was told to these people that it was wholly my decision and nobody else's. And um, so it was really frustrating, that that period. And But I had to own it. I sat in front of the people that, that were let go and, and I had to do it a certain way, which is not the way I would normally do it. Um, but I, I don't want to go into details on that. But um, <clears throat> I, I owned it sat in front of them and said, this is a decision. And uh, at the time, they said, look, we respect the fact that you did it. You could have hidden away because that's what a lot of people did in the past um, uh, is get somebody else to do that job for them. But I did it, uh, owned it, and it was it was a messy period, really messy period. And I thought I had the support of staff members who agreed with the decision, but subsequently was um, left on the island and uh, to carry the can, which that's okay. That's what I was brought in to do. I didn't have the emotional attachment um, but what what was uh, reassuring and unequivocal was the players' uh, support and the management support, and I'm talking from coaches, CEOs, everybody. They all agreed with the decision, and subsequently, it's been the story has been uh, led elsewhere. But um, I know that it was done in the best interest of the club. And every decision was a. Comp- if it was, if I wanted to be, um, if I wanted to have still been working at Arsenal and to uh, have done the easy decision, I would have kept them all on, and would have just kept going, and we'd all be happy. And um, but it, it, you know, we'd all be employed and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I felt it was in the best interests of the club, and I probably would have made a few more decisions at the time if I had my time again. Um, I wouldn't have been. Uh, so sympathetic to a couple of people that, that were still there. Um, I would have made wholesale changes so that the place could be more collegiate, um, which is what I was told to do. But I fought hard for a, a couple of members of staff there that I thought could change. But they didn't. They didn't. And, and that's, yeah, that ultimately cost me my job there. But mm. that's, that's football. I've always thought that in the Premier League in particular, people were more concerned about keeping their jobs than doing a good job. Obviously, it's a very uh, fragile environment. Uh, there's a lot of people coming and going, and job security is... And if you want job security, you don't go and work in the Premier League. Yeah. And I think my impression is that, in a lot of cases, staff uh, basically work out what they've got to do to, to keep their job, and that usually means agreeing with everything the manager says and to doing... Uh, and because the manager then gets their, their loyalty and if if uh, the manager is sacked, then hopefully he'll take them on to his, his yeah. next job and so on. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think um, every situation is different yeah. um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brutal industry. You know, it's not like the AFL where there's a bit more stability or even, you know, places like European rugby and NFL. And, uh, the, uh, the things can change so quickly over there. So I can completely understand somebody's uh, when somebody has a tough decision to make. Do they go against the manager or against a player, an influential player, even though they think it might be beneficial to both? Or do they say nothing 
and and uh, and keep the peace. So I can completely understand that decision. Um, we probably had the fortune of that not being home. That's not home. You know, home is Australia and mm. um, where our uh, industry is a bit more stable. So um, I was brought in there specifically for a reason and so I did made every single decision in what I thought was the best interest of Arsenal Football Club and still maintain that. Yeah. Like I said, I would have done a few things differently, but um, I can understand that, that environment. So I don't want to judge people. There are some outstanding practitioners in the Premier League in sports medicine, but they're often hamstrung by not being able to speak up to a manager because a manager, understandably, might only have six games. You know, most managers, other than the really top managers, uh, can only look ahead six games because if they lose the next six, they're out of a job, um, which is would be unbelievable pressure. So, um, yeah, there, I mean, there was a couple of conversations which we can talk about with future guests and things like that with managers, which people would not believe, would not believe that the um, uh, the pressure that these these managers are under. You know, Unai Emery was never safe at Arsenal following Arsene Wenger. So um, he never really felt comfortable there. So that, that pressure of having 60,000 people and 10 million member, Facebook members booing your every move, you know, that's... So I can understand, my long long answer is I can understand that point of view. <clears throat> so a lot of good practitioners are a bit hamstrung by um, their loyalty to the manager and their desire to keep a job rather than necessarily make those harder decisions. Not everyone, but... but yeah, it can be quite tough. You're obviously at Arsenal at a fascinating time, the end of the Arsene Wenger era. Um, he'd been there for years and years and years, what, 15, 18 years? Oh, or, I think 23. 23 years, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, <clears throat> was it clear to you that, that his time was coming to an end? Uh, yes, he he even admitted that um, at uh, in my interview. Yeah. Um, uh, he said, look, he's not going to be here forever and... You know that that's and he wants to set up the club in its best possible scenario um, going forward. Um, so yeah, he, he, I think it was clear that the club were making decisions uh, around um, Arsene to to help ensure that he, he was such a dominant figure around the place and justify that he he literally built that club. Um, you know, for in terms of the training centre and. Everything was his idea, his concept. He revolutionised the club and the Premier League as a whole in terms of some of the strategies mm. and techniques that he brought in. So, um, so yeah, it was it was clear that that the club were were safeguarding um, the place. Unfortunately, the CEO got a you know got a almost a once in a lifetime opportunity, and he he uh, left to go and join AC Milan and. Then after after appointing Uno, um, and then uh, uh, yeah, everything sort of changed after that, and and we all felt like it was going to change um, as soon as as soon as uh, the CEO came and said, "Look, I'm off." There was rumours around, but as soon as he, mm. he came and told me that I'm off, uh, we had a discussion about um, uh, that. The position, all the positions that he appointed were now left quite exposed. And right. So the person who basically got you there, well, the two people, two Arsene people. Wenger and, and uh, Ivan, had left. Yes. And, and you felt quite exposed, obviously. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and We had a similar situation at Liverpool, didn't we? Exactly. Exactly the same. Exactly. And I always felt that if I did the work, yep. 
um, I'd be okay. If I did the job, I'd be okay. And so in that, that year when uh, Unai joined for the first year, uh, we calculated um, the number of uh, injury payments that we saved the club over the previous eight-year average, of which we had some very good, reliable data um, on, and uh, it was in the vicinity of hundreds of millions of pounds in terms of injury payments over the two years that I'd been there. Mm. Um, so I always felt pretty confident that as long as I did the work, we'd be okay. Um, but uh, obviously without the support of Arsene and yeah. Ivan, the two people who signed off, um, yeah. So, you know, Emria was obviously, Arsene is a huge hold fill and uh, Arsenal looked around. There was a lot of rumours about uh, even Michael, Michael Arteta at that stage yes. uh, and different people. Um, what was your sort of feeling on uh, on which way they should have gone? And, and when they did go with you, now what was how did that work out for you initially? What were your first impressions? Look, the role that I had at, at the level that I was fortunate enough to be on at Arsenal, I was involved in a lot of those early discussions around managers, and the the process that they went through was as comprehensive as any in terms of to whittle down the so uh, absolutely. You know that's above my pay scale to um, mm. to be hiring managers for for Arsenal. But yeah. what I was exposed to was very very comprehensive. I, I didn't really have a thought on where they should go or what the place needed, but I did feel that the that um, Arsenal needed a, a a figure that could command the dressing room because, as you know as well as I do, when you have big personalities in a dressing room, you need a big personality to command their respect, the players' respect. Um, so uh, that's where I felt that they needed. They appointed Unai and with him came six or seven staff, I think it was, um, uh, you know, fitness, technical, coaching, goalkeeping. Um, so basically a team of Spanish coaches and fitness and a fitness coach came in and basically overtook the whole the whole place. Um, so it was a big change. Now, we'd been through it before at Liverpool, but you can imagine people who'd been there for only Arsene um, just thought that their whole world was caving in and um, and that was really tough on, on Unai and really tough on on uh, those around him to try and ad adjust to to this new way of, of doing things. And fortunately, I'd seen it before a few times, so um, this wasn't new. We brought in Chris Morgan, a physiotherapist from Liverpool, who'd seen many managerial changes, as you know. Mm. He'd seen it before, so he was a big calming influence amongst some of the staff that were genuinely panicking mm. about what all that meant, uh, especially when a new fitness coach comes in and says Yeah, tell this. us about that. I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're running the show and, and all of a sudden the manager brings in his man. How, do, how, did that, how does that work? Yeah, it was interesting because I was told uh, previously... Uh, Tony Colbert, who was Arsene's fitness guy, that he was going to be unbelievably difficult and he had no idea what he was doing and all this sort of stuff. So I told these horror stories about Tony. In the first couple of months, um, it was tough because Tony could be an abrasive character, um, but we had a common goal and we found, after a couple of months, we found a common goal and Arsene said on many occasions, I can't believe how well you guys are working together because um, our common goal was to make sure the players were well prepared and they worked hard. And that was often at odds with some of the other staff there who um, chose a more conservative way of doing things. But Tony was very aggressive in his um, opinions. And um, so I, I'd had plenty of experience at dealing with 
managers, fitness coaches, if you like. And by the end of Tony's time there, um, we, we, I would consider him a friend and, and a mutual colleague in terms of uh, um, uh, similar goals. So when Julian came in, who was, uh, again, it was pretty tough because he had his own ways of doing things. And uh, as we know over there, the manager brings in their own person and their own person becomes boss. It doesn't matter what it looks like on an org chart. And, you know, I was told many times, no, no, you sit above him on the org chart, but we know how it works. So I had to sit down and learn Julian's philosophy. And whether I agreed with that or not was largely irrelevant. And there was a lot of things that I did agree with, a lot of things that I didn't agree with. But what is... Um, what was comforting and reassuring and what is fact is in those early times, we, we butted heads on a lot of things, but largely um, Julian uh, and Unai knew that the through through discussions with the CEO and probably the owners that what we were doing at, at Arsenal was working because our injury rates were going down. And so they said that the team, the performance team, um, we like them and we want them to, to stay and we, we want their methods to be respected. And so we found a common ground. Um, technically, it was hard because Unai's English wasn't fantastic in that early stage. So uh, uh, he he wanted to completely tactically change. Um, so that involved a lot of explanation and things like that. So uh, Julian and I had to come to an agreement as to how we would keep the intensity of training sessions quite high, which is needed in the Premier League. Um so there were some compromises on both sides uh, on that, but uh, we came to respect each other, um, respect each other's views, but it was tough. There mm. was some heavy conversations early on about whether the players should be having orange juice and which brand of butter and, you know, so it got to that, that sort of level, which most people might find uh, funny, but it wasn't funny at the time when I'm having to research Spanish butter and, <laughs> you know, Spanish orange juice and things like that. So uh, they certainly didn't teach me that at university. Mm. So, and what uh, about you and I, Emery? I mean, uh, obviously you've been very successful yes. uh, elsewhere and came in with a lot of a lot of pressure, obviously. I mean, yep. it's similar to the, the, the Fergie at, at, at Man U. I mean, it's almost impossible to yep. to follow these. In fact, you know, you, you probably wouldn't want to take a job like that, really. No. But uh, um, what did he – I mean, you said he tried to change tactically. In what yes. way, mainly? Yeah, very. he overhauled completely the, the tactics of the team. He felt that um, yeah, we needed to play a more high-pressing game and um, be uh, a bit, little bit less um, in complete control of possession um, and be a little bit more um, uh, demanding of the opposition and put more pressure on the opposition when they had the ball. Um uh, and there was, uh, I'm sure there was more and more layers, which you know is beyond this um, uh, yeah. this uh, podcast. But um, he was on a, I felt he was on a hiding to nothing because the the things like the Aaron Ramsey situation and the Mesut Ozil situation and those scenarios had had uh, and Jack Wilshere's situation, he'd sort of bought into without even realising. So uh, whether I agreed or disagreed with his methods and the way he went about things is is irrelevant. What I do know is that he was in a really tough situation. And initially some results were pretty good. Mm. Um, but then when the results, as soon as the results went poorly because of his mannerisms and, you know, you know some of the language issues, um, people turned on him pretty quickly, you know, whether they were players or supporters and things like that, even some staff pretty quickly, which made it pretty hard for him. It's a very difficult, isn't it? A manager comes in, inherits a group of players who are suited to playing, presumably are suited, are there because they suit Arsene Wenger's style. Yep. 
you try and you realise that that style is probably out of fashion now. The, yep. the press, everyone's pressing and pressing. Yep. And you've got to try and change that style with the, the group of players who were not suited to that, who were no. suited to the Wenger. You know, Mesut Ozil being the classic example, yep. I mean, wonderful player, no one's going to argue with that. Yep. Suited to the the high-possession style of Wenger, not suited to a hard-pressing hard style. But you can't – you've got to work with these people. We had the best – well, one thing that people don't realise about Arsenal, and we're lucky enough to be in the initial stages at Liverpool when they set up their whole statistical sort of backdrop to everything that they do in 2012, um, Arsenal had one of the most sophisticated statistical um, uh, companies um, – in the world of football, certainly supporting everything in stat DNA and Jason Rosenfeld, who was outstanding um, as the CEO. So we knew statistically that our players were not necessarily suited to this high octane Jurgen Klopp, mm. um, you know, pressing style that that a lot of clubs, whether they were Liverpool or things like you know Burnley, Wolverhampton, Brighton. Um, these teams, Bournemouth, that were unbelievably high-intensity-based um, game styles, and we just simply didn't have the players. We had some outstanding players, but they just weren't physically capable. So in that second year, we got them as capable as in the in the uh, Unai's first year, sorry, as capable as they possibly could, and and all of our running numbers in the Premier League were were excellent, and we stretched that team to its absolute limit. Um, but at the end of the day. Um, you know, Mo Salah is a freak in terms of his running. He would do in a half what most other players would do in in a game. And a lot of our players that were capable of doing that um, were the high-risk players like Welbeck and Ramsey and, and, and those guys. So um, so it was hard to implement that playing style, um, uh, that physical playing style that was the, on you know in vogue in the Premier League and still is with players that, that might not have been exposed to that. So it was it was tough, but um, that's why he was paid a lot of money to, to do that. Um, and the recruiters started recruiting some players who were, who were perhaps more capable of, uh, of doing that. Um, and whether they were success or failure, that's for other people to judge. Uh, my job was trying to get the most out of them with the help of, you know, of the performance team. And how did players like Ozil and so on, who clearly weren't suited to that? I mean, how did they cope with all that? Yeah, it was it was tough. It was it's well documented that that Unai and Mesut had a love hate relationship, and and you know we were physic the physical performance team were right in the middle of that. Um, uh, so um, we had to manage that situation as best we could with respect to the player, and and respect to the man- manager's wishes, which is your job. Um, uh, did they adapt to it well? Um, I think they welcomed the change in terms of tactics and, and I think they respected the fact that Unai was, like Arsene, was an absolute workaholic and would spend hours and hours and hours watching video and and games and come up with the best model to try and beat Manchester City or Burnley. Or I think they respected that. Um, but it, it was tough to, um, to bring in that style, particularly when, and this is... If you look at the stats on in the Premier League, um, when you're in the Europa League, the number of Europa League teams that make the the top four, I think there's only been two or three in in its entire history. Because to play Thursday Sunday with that high pressing game, in that first year of the Europa League when we made the the final, uh, Unai would very rarely change his team 
um, and that's his decision, so that's fine, no problem. But as a performance team, we had to adapt to that and prepare players to get back into London after a you know a European game at three a.m. on a on a Friday morning to play on Sunday at midday. Um, yeah, the same players to back up. So that was tough. That was tough. So I think we did a really good job in getting the players ready for, uh, I think we had 60-odd games that season um, and, and all the way to the Europa League final. It wasn't until the last week of the Premier League that we were sort of knocked out of the top four as well. Mm. So so how do you manage that situation? I mean, obviously in the AFL we get stressed out when there's you know six-day or even five, oh, my God, a five-day break, you know. Yes. Uh, and yet here we are three-day, uh, three days between, well, it's a Thursday night, as you say, if it's away, they travel, get back in the early hours of Friday Friday morning and they've got to play virtually 48 hours uh, later. They might be playing at lunchtime on uh, on Sunday. Yeah, um, yeah. So w- what do you do? I mean, do you just tell them to go home to bed or uh, and sleep for two days? or what? How do you manage that situation? Yeah, some, some players slept at the training ground. Uh, certainly some staff. When we got in at sort of 3 a.m. on a Friday morning, we knew we had to be back at 11, 12 o'clock the next day um, to sleep at the training ground. Um uh, so it, we, we heavily recovered them on the Friday. Um, uh, so we'd give them a sleep in. They didn't have to come in till 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. There would be a group who didn't play who would go out and train and the other group would, would recover. And that involved, we were lucky enough to have cryotherapy at the at, at Arsenal, um, some light activities, some massage, that sort of thing. Um, then the next day is a tough one because that's match, match day minus one. The coach has gone from preparing for um, Napoli on the Thursday night um, to preparing for Manchester City on the Sunday. So he wants to quite rightly do tactics. Um, one of the things we fought hard against, um, a couple of us uh, early on in my time there, was two days after a game, traditionally they had done nothing. And two days after the game when you're in the Europa League <laughs> often means one day before yeah. a game. So you can't do nothing. So we had to instill the players about four or five weeks before the Europa League even started, the two days after the game they have to train so that we got them accustomed to that so that when the Europa League came and, and Arsene and Uno wanted to do something on the Saturday, and this is something that the club had never done before, um, so that, that met with a lot of re- resistance among staff and some players. So we have to get them out there and, and do some tactics and shape and things like that um, on the Saturday because we'd play, you know, Manchester United or City, and we were competing for the top four at that stage. So, um, so it was tough. We we tried to give them a, a real recovery focus on the Friday, but then encourage them to get out there on the Saturday and then recover post training on the Saturday afternoon, ready for the Sunday. Nutrition, sleep, um, cryo, massage, ice baths, any sort of combination of that. You mentioned cryo. Tell us tell us about the use of cryo. Or yeah, what, Arsenal. What involved? Yeah, Arsenal had the the biggest cryotherapy chamber at a club. Uh, um, in the country uh, at that point. Maybe it still is. It's only been a year since I've left, um, uh, just over a year since I've left Arsenal. So, um, uh, But, yeah, we would uh, ha- we could fit four or five players in there and they would go in there for a three-minute period and not everybody was as brave as, as everybody else, so we wouldn't send everybody in there, but we certainly made it compulsory early on and then the players who felt like they were getting a really big benefit, they kept... They kept doing it. Uh, the women used it. The uh, academy teams used it. So, um, yeah. Uh, look, there's there's as much good research as bad research, um, uh, or I- I- effective research that suggests it's effective as there is ineffective. Um, I'm a believer. I think it works um, from a personal point of view. Um, 
your sleep is massively improved. Um, I think it's a, a huge, we've looked at heart rate variability. I know Welsh Rugby have looked at the testosterone spike afterwards. So they use it the day before a game. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's some, there's some clear benefits in it. Um, I don't think it's going to be the difference between winning or losing, but I think so there's... Marginal gain? Yeah, I think there's some benefit in, in using it at different times. Right, so all in all, you spent two full seasons at two full uh, seasons, yeah, at Arsenal. Um, who was the best athlete at Arsenal? Uh, uh, Aubameyang. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oba was who came, who came halfway through your time. Yes, yeah, a striker yeah. from from uh, Borussia Dortmund. Yeah. Um, and we we did a lot of research uh, statistically because he was wasn't young. Mm. Um, but he, we're fortunate enough to have data, uh, German physical data, so we knew that he had speed was speed enormous. was ridiculous, yeah. and and one of the things that we modelled on is the decline of what rate would his speed decline at, mm. and we looked at people like Jamie Vardy and those sort of people who, were, and yeah, it declines those explosive players. It certainly does decline, but because they come from such a high base, even the rate of decline is keeps them higher than. You know the rest of the population, so um, and Ober's been a massive hit. You know, won the Golden Boot mm, uh, in Uno's first season, so he was the best athlete and unbelievably resilient. He just wanted to play, would put his hand up for every single game, um, which made us nervous because he was so explosive. Mm. And often he would play on the wing where yeah. the demands were a lot higher. But it's hard to go past Ober. Great guy, always smiling, always laughing, and rarely missed a game. One of the impressions I had of Arsenal is from looking from afar was there didn't seem to be a lot of natural leaders there, or on-field leaders. Is that a, is that a fair comment? Um, yeah, I think players like Hector Bellerin, who was unfortunately injured for a lot of the time you know, with his knee, were natural on-field leaders. Um, Granite Xhaka was as well. Um, but... Uh, yeah, within the dressing room, there was probably a few leaders in Petr Cech. I think we lost a lot when, when Petr retired. Yeah. Um, uh, Aaron Ramsey, um, uh, Lauren Koscielny, um, who led in a different way, wasn't necessarily verbal, but led by his actions. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's probably a fair statement that there wasn't um, as natural a leader as a Jordan Henderson or a Steven Gerrard or... Mm. Um, you know, those sorts of people. I, I don't know who's at Man City or Man United. You can imagine in the days of Roy Keane and, and those yeah. sorts of people, there probably wasn't that sort of leader. And certainly from the stories that Steve Bold used to tell me about, you know, Vieira and Henri and, and those guys, Tony Adams, they were natural leaders and Steve himself. So important, isn't it? I mean, I always think that you're very fortunate if your best players are also good people and good leaders. Yeah. And often that's... By, more by luck than by good management, but it, it should play a part in recruiting, surely. Yeah, I think one of the issues is the recruitment around, if you if we're recruiting, for example, you know, Melbourne recruited Adam Tomlinson, as an example, from GWS, yep. for a fraction of the money of what any of these Premier League people, but they go down to his under-16s coaches and all the way up and speak to their coaches about personality traits, everything about So you know what you're getting when you recruit an Adam Tomlinson, who's a 26-year-old, mm. 27-year-old, and has played eight years in the league. So they don't just go to GWS, who we recruited him from. Uh, that just, that's not done at all in the Premier League. So um, 
we recruited some players at Arsenal like uh, Socrates and Littsteiner who were older players. And uh, when we recruited them, we were sort of assured that they will sort out the dressing room and be leaders in the dressing room. And that's not quite what we got. Um, so uh, I think that's one of the um, flaws of just using the statistical model or just speaking to the player or the player's agent. There's some obvious benefits in doing that, but I think perhaps uh, some of the recruitment should look more into personality as well as body language and things like that, which I know in the NBA and things like that. In the draft-based systems, they have to do. It's not done in, in world football for, for a myriad of reasons, but you often don't get what you think you're getting. Mm. Strange, isn't it, given that there's so much money involved that they wouldn't go into those sort of uh, details? I, I think they look at them, but yeah. they don't go into the detail that the draft-based um, leagues... And ultimately, it's, if they're a super talent, then they'll... Uh, they'll get in the door and they'll compromise on, on certain things. And, mm. and I think that's probably a, um, uh, something which, which a lot of clubs are starting to look at. And Arsene was big on in personality profiling and things like that. Mm. But at the end of the day, if Mesut Ozil wants to come, you sign him because at that point he was one of the top three or four. And mm. n not denigrating his character at all. I got along really well with Mesut. He's a good guy. He worked really hard, much maligned. Unfairly, mm, much maligned. Um, yeah. Unfairly, because his physical numbers were outstanding. So please don't think that. Um, but I think more uh, personality profiling should go into it and character, particularly when you're recruiting someone who you think will be a leader. Mm. We're running out of time. Uh, at, uh, I'm sick always, of talking about myself, so that's probably a, a good thing. Fascinating uh, chat. Um, thanks, Burjo, and uh, we'll catch you next time. No worries. Thanks, Brookie. See you. Yeah.